The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. How are we this morning? Good to see you all. If we haven't met yet, my name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we start, I don't know if you heard about this, but uh, something crazy happened at the church this week. I don't know if you heard about it or not, but um, here's a photo of that. Um, If you don't know what that is, just ask someone. Uh, Make sure you social distance when you ask that question. Um, So we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians this morning, and uh, we're going to be in chapter 11. And as we have said throughout the series, the uh, Corinthian church sent Paul a letter asking him many questions about their church, and 1 Corinthians is the answer to those questions. And uh, we read, whenever we read the book, it's kind of like watching the game show Jeopardy, uh, where you have the answer, then you try to guess what the question is. And so today's passage is a little bit like that, where you're seeing this really complex issue in the church, and we have to kind of guess what their questions were, why Paul's answering the question this way. And so there's a lot to untangle in today's passage. We begin a new section, uh, chapters 11 through 14, in which Paul addresses problems that are arising from their corporate worship gatherings. Can you imagine that, just that there's problems that could arise from corporate worship gatherings, and uh, they're having issues with communion and spiritual gifts and how those are being exercised in the church. And uh, today we encounter a highly debated passage uh, dealing with gender roles in the church. Even the people that write commentaries say this is the most complex, controversial, and difficult passages in the Bible. So congratulations to me. Uh, before the nine o'clock hour, someone said, how did you, did you draw the, the short straw in staff meeting? I was like, no, listen, preaching the word of God is never drawing the short straw. Amen? So we're going to go through this passage together, even though it is fairly complex. Um, I also want to encourage you that if you have questions, and I know many of you will, uh, please email us. Go to our website. You can email myself, other staff members. Our elders' emails are on there as well, I believe. And uh, please ask us questions if this causes questions for you as you think about um, what this means for the body of Christ. Preparing today's message has been really humbling. I'm reminded of the words of Paul early in the early part of the book where Paul says, for I decided to know, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's exactly how I'm coming to you today. That's the spirit that I want this message to be in. And so I'm going to give you my best shot with this passage, but that's the spirit and my desire as you walk through it together. This uh, passage will be difficult for anyone, especially if you are not yet a Christ follower. You might hear today's message and you might say, I knew it. I knew they had these outdated beliefs in the church. And uh, we believe here, though, that God is good, God is sovereign, and he does things on purpose with intentionality. And so I want to invite you just to please give us a hearing this morning. Um, I would also say that if we worship a God who has all knowledge and all truth, and a God who is perfect and we are imperfect, well, at some point, that God is going to disagree with us. At some point, we're going to take issue with something that that God has to say. And so if it's not this topic, it might be something else altogether. There really are a few different views of men and women throughout history and cultures. 
some places they see men as superior, women as inferior. We might call that the chauvinist position. Then we have women superior, men inferior. It might be called the feminist position. And then there's some that would say, well, men, they're, they're basically the same, just different biologically. And then the fourth position might be men and women equal in dignity and value, but different. And so today I'm going to argue for the fourth perspective. We worship a God, a good God, who does things with purpose and intention. And we believe that both men and women are equally made in God's image, but they have different roles in the family and also in the church. And so this sounds, I know, politically incorrect, because many think that if we acknowledge any kind of difference whatsoever, well, then it leads to inequality. And in some places it does. Without question, some have exploited these differences leading to oppression and abuse of the opposite gender. But that's just what sin does, isn't it? It distorts God's good design. And instead of us focusing on the sin, we begin to question the design and even question the designer himself. And this is exactly what happened at the fall in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve. Satan knew if he could get them to question God's goodness, then he had them. And so we don't want to fall prey to the same kind of thing this morning. So look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start in verse 2. And it says, Now now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So what does Paul mean when he says that man is the head? Some have said, if man is the head, then woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants. I've heard that said before. But what does that mean, that, that man is, is head? Well, we really get our, our model for relationship from the Trinity. So before we address gender roles, let's look at the Trinity for a few moments. We believe that there is one God, but three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and all three are equally God, but have different roles within the Trinity. We would never question the value or essence of any person of the Godhead. The Son has a different role than the Father, but the difference does not mean inequality. One theologian, Claire Smith, writes, one of the fallacies of modern feminist ideology is that for people to be equal, they must do the same thing. But you can have differentiation and authority in relationships without having inferiority and superiority of dignity or value. People can be of equal dignity and value, but have different roles or functions. So when, when Paul says the head of every man is Christ, well, what is Christ's posture towards mankind? Well, in Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus says of himself, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So whenever we think of how, what our posture is supposed to be, it was, as we think about male headship, it, it should really reflect the posture that Jesus has towards mankind, which is this sacrificial posture. Whenever I do a wedding, um, I always quote Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where, where Paul writes, 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So for Jesus, what does headship look like? Well, it looks like sacrifice. It looks like him hanging on a cross. It looks like him bleeding out and dying on behalf of humanity. That's what it looks like. And so this can help us understand Ephesians 5, 25, where Paul says, husbands, you should love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what does it mean that man is the head? It means that the man gets to be the head servant. Whenever I do a wedding, I tell the groom, when God calls you to be the head and to lead, it's not about power and who gets to be the boss. It's not about that. It's about spiritual responsibility. God has placed the mantle of spiritual responsibility on the man. And if Jesus came and knocked on your door, he would ask for you, the man. That's really what we see in Genesis chapter 3. It's what happens. Whenever they fall into sin, when God goes and pursues them as a couple, he says, he calls out to Adam. He calls out for the man. Because the man is spiritually responsible for his wife and family. There are really two ways that men, that we as men can get this wrong. We either go aggressive or we go passive. We can abuse and exploit. We can twist the words of Scripture to mean what we want them to mean. We, we turn it into aggression and, and think of ourselves as better than or superior to. And we can go aggressive or we can turn passive. And we can recognize the thing that God is calling us to, to be and to do and say, I want no part of that. That, that. That's too much of a burden for me to carry. And we can turn passive and just turn inward. So we can abuse our role or we can shirk our responsibility but both, of course, are, are sinful. This really should strike a healthy fear, I think, in us as men. And it really should lead to humility, not pride and arrogance. And so what does that look like in the family? When I think of what happened here on the stage last Sunday when, when Mark Wood shared his testimony on the stage as he's a candidate to be an elder here at TBC. And one thing he said that really hit me was that he he was beginning to pursue God and, and his wife and him are pursuing what they're going to be doing together as a couple as far as where they're going to live, what job he's going to have. And he said he really had to go to his wife, and I think they had kids at the time, and his kids, and say, hey, I'm sorry. I want to repent, and now I want to do this the right way and, and yield to Jesus as I lead this family. And so what does it mean for a man to be a, the head? Well, that's what it looks like. It, it looks like brokenness and repentance and surrender, when the man is spiritually led by Christ and he in turn leads his family well, this is a beautiful picture of what God intends. So now if you're struggling with the idea that we are equal but different, it is helpful to ask this question. Why did God create marriage in the first place? Of course there's procreation, but God could have had us reproduce asexually like cells do, right? Just one for one. What is marriage for? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't it save a lot of trouble and a lot of issues if God just did it the other way? So, so why did God design this thing called marriage? Well, over in Ephesians chapter 5, we see God's purpose for marriage is to give us a picture of Christ's relationship to the church, his bride. You see, God is doing something profound 
with this institution called marriage. And he wants to paint a picture for me and for you and also for the entire watching world what his love for the church looks like. And so he's created this thing called marriage, which is kind of a riddle to most of us, right? It didn't make make sense a lot of the time. But God's doing that because he wants you and me and also the watching world to understand something about him. That's what marriage is for. So if that's why God gave us marriage, then it makes sense that there's going to be some different roles in marriage. God assigns some things biologically and some things theologically. He's given, of course, the, the, the male and the female different, different assignments biologically, but he's also given us different assignments theologically. He's given the woman the role of childbearing, mainly because men aren't up to the task. But there's also some theological assignments that he gives out, and he assigns man as the role of head, and we'll see in a minute how she is to be helper, and it's not what you think it means, and that's a theological assignment that God has given. But because of sin, sometimes these roles don't play out so well, but that should not negate the principle and the roles that God has assigned. As we move to the following verses, I want you to keep these big ideas in verse 3 in mind. Look at verse 4. It says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Now listen, this... Uh, there's a lot of landmines in this passage, right? And reading this can sound shocking. But it's important to understand the cultural context. In fact, it reminds me of a story. Uh, back in 2013, we took our first New York City mission trip with our students to Queens, New York. And while we're there, we're doing ESL classes with their uh, a ministry center, outreach center there in Queens. And uh, it's amazing the kind of people you get to meet in those settings. And so people are coming in, barely speaking English, they want to learn English, but we also get to teach them the gospel while they're there as well. And uh, one of the conversational exercises in class was, I'm between these two students that you see here in the picture, and they said, go ahead and just make conversation. You can ask about your, your families, your, your wives, children, make some conversation about your, fam- your, your, your lives wherever you live. And so I turned to the guy on my left and asked him if he's married, if he has kids. He does. We talk about that. He asked me the same question. I turned to the guy on my right and I say, are you married? And he goes, he kind of laughed uncomfortably and he kind of pointed to his robe and I realized at that moment that, oh yeah, this guy is a Buddhist monk. They don't get married. Now I feel like an idiot. And, uh, and um, then I end up apologizing, saying I'm sorry, but it didn't sound like I'm saying I'm sorry you're not married. It, just, it, it was a big mess. Really awkward. But here's why I tell you that. Because clothing communicates In his culture, it communicates, I'm not married. In the Corinthian culture, a head covering communicated something. To a woman, it communicated that she was married. And that was true of the secular culture as well. So here's something else that a head covering would have communicated in that culture as well, if a man wore a head covering. Remember, the issue here 
is what's happening in the corporate worship gathering as they pray and prophesy. And yes, women did pray and prophesy in the corporate worship gathering. We'll cover what prophecy is in a couple of weeks, what that would look like. But in that day, even the pagan men would pull this toga up over their head as they worshiped idols to show their deference to their idols. So when Paul tells the men who are Christ followers to not cover their head, it is to distinguish them from the idol worshipers in that culture. It's to be different as a man. So the next question you might ask is, well then, but then why does he tell the women to keep their head covered? Is he saying you should look like an idol worshiper? But he tells the women to keep their head covered because in Roman culture, women covered their head in mixed company. To not cover it would be considered immodest, and that was true even out there in the secular world. We see this in many places today, like in the Middle East especially. In public, she would cover her head, but in privacy of the home, she would remove the veil. And this made church gatherings kind of tricky because churches met primarily in homes. So Paul is saying, treat the church gathering like a public event, not a private event. Now, this is not a command for today about hair length for women. You can rest easy, ladies, okay? We'll say more about this as we go, but follow his argument. He says, if you will not cover your head, then you might as well cut off your hair or shave your head, which in that culture might have communicated sexual availability. Some scholars even say, Women who were prostitutes may leave their hair uncovered, or an adulteress might have her head shaved. So it would communicate the wrong message, even out there in the culture, if you were to take off the, the veil or take off the head covering in public. And now, this is not an exact parallel, but similar. It would be like dressing a certain way to attract someone, or removing a wedding ring when you're walking into a certain situation. And this would dishonor someone's spouse if they did that. So this might be hard for us to understand, but there are widely varying dress codes throughout history and throughout the world today. If we're to go overseas to reach a different culture with the gospel, we'd be wise to respect their cultural norms. Now, it doesn't mean that you go all the way to the ends of you look like you worship their gods. We don't want to be mistaken for idol worshipers, but we also need to respect certain customs of modesty in certain cultures. Even today, right here where you and I live, there are certain standards out there in the world of just things you do and do not, things you do and don't do. Like you would never wear a bathing suit, even a modest one, to a job interview. You just wouldn't do it. You wouldn't wear an LSU sweatshirt to an Alabama championship party. I once knew someone who probably would do that, by the way. But we dress a certain way for... Weddings and funerals. So Paul's not making some rule for all people in all places about hair length. But he is communicating an important, I think, missional principle, and it says, we should not be more liberal than the culture we're trying to reach. So if the women out there in the culture wore a head covering, then Paul exhorts the women of the church to do the exact same thing. And he's saying, we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive, even to the culture out there. So if you remember back last week, Chase preached in chapter 10, and Paul says this quote, 
in verses 31 to 33, he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You see, the issue is that many of us, we kind of look at our culture and we say, I don't really care what they think. Now that might be true in the sense of, yeah, the gospel's offensive, right? But we don't need to be unnecessarily offensive, There are many in in the church world, I think, that just want to pick a fight with the culture about anything and everything, and Paul's just saying, we don't need to do that. The gospel's offensive enough on its own. We don't need extra drama. And this is kind of what Paul's getting at here. He's saying, look, let's abide by what the cultural customs are here in this part of the world at this time so that we can see many come to know Jesus. That's really the point, right? To live on mission in the culture. So if there are certain standards concerning dress in the secular culture, then it's wise for Christians to follow them, as long as, as long as they're not sinful, of course, so we don't unnecessarily offend someone as we're attempting to reach them with the gospel. So if, the, if these previous verses were landmine verses for you, then just wait till we get to verses 7 through 10. Go ahead and look at verses 7 through 10. It says, For a man ought not to cover... For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Okay, now it's getting hot in here. I'm not kidding. At the last hour, I think when I read that verse, I was like up here sweating, right? Just... Uh, and so um, there's a lot to unpack here. It looks like he is saying that man is created to glorify God, but the woman is created to glorify man. Is that what he's saying? That's not what Paul's saying. That'd be idolatry if her purpose is to glorify the man in the way that we glorify God. That's not what he's saying here. If you go back to Genesis, we know that both are created in God's image. God says, let us... Make man in our image. It's plural language. Let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we know from Genesis that both are made in his image, and that's true whether you're single or married. Every individual is made in God's image. But there is just something mysterious about the male-female idea that displays God's image together. Well, we can't fully grasp it, but there's something that God, I think, is communicating here where made in his image meant that he had to make male and female. And there's a lot that's been written about that. I'm not going to get into all that. That's a whole different set of sermons. But there is something about that, I think, that is profound We know from Genesis both are made in his image. And so to understand this, we have to understand what the word glory means. The Greek word is doxa. The ancient world was a honor-shame culture, meaning people saw themselves not simply as an individual like today, but they saw themselves in the context of family or community. 
And to bring shame on themselves would shame the entire family. So in their context, a wife going without a head covering while praying and prophesying would be considered immodest. That was true even in the secular world. And that would bring shame to her husband and family. And so remember, clothing always communicates. It has in every part of the world, all throughout history. And when it says in verse 9, that woman is created for man, that does not mean that she is created to be his servant. If the image you have in your mind is you sitting by the pool while she fans your face, feeding you grapes, that is not what Paul is talking about here. Because when you go back to the creation story, Eve was created to be Adam's helper. But the word for helper is this Hebrew word, ezer, which is E-Z-E-R, and it is a word that God uses to describe even himself. As God describes him coming alongside humanity, the paraclete is what the word is used for, I think, Holy, Holy Spirit, and it's a similar concept. And so in what way is she to be his helper? This does not mean that she is man's plaything or domestic slave. It means that she gets to help him in filling and subduing the earth, as described in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Remember, when God creates Adam, he takes Adam from what? From the dust. But when he creates Eve, where does he take Eve from? He didn't take her from the dust. I mean, she's too good for that. He takes her from Adam. He takes her from Adam, he creates Eve. And so to to any man out there who wants to take the words of Scripture and twist them so they can be oppressive or be abusive or exploit women, I think you need to understand, she came from you. When you go back to the creation story, woman came from man. I think God's communicating something really profound there that she came from you. How can you exploit or abuse or oppress someone that you are one with? She literally came from you. And then in verse 10, it talks about, uh, it has this phrase, because of the angels. Now, most don't know what this means. Some have speculated that since this is about the public worship gathering, It refers to angels being present when the church gathers to worship. Just imagine that for a minute. Like, there could be angels gathered to worship as we worship the body of Christ in the church. Other people link it back to chapter 6 when Paul talks about lawsuits among believers. And Paul says, church in Corinth, stop suing each other. Don't you know that you'll one day judge who? The angels. So if that's correct, then Paul could be saying to the women of Corinth, listen, you're going to be right there with the men judging the angels. Right alongside them. So whatever Paul meant by this phrase, we assume that the Corinthians knew just what he was saying, what he was referring to. Now, if you've read this thinking Paul is saying that men are superior and women are inferior, Verses 11 and 12 should pour some cold water on that. Look at verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Eve is taken from Adam, but all men thereafter, of course, come from woman. So God reverses it now. So because of men, because of sin, many of us fall victim to the idea that we don't need the opposite sex. Sin has a way of driving us into these separate corners, into chauvinism, feminism. There isn't a person in this room at some point in your life, whether you're married now or not, at some point in your mind you thought, I don't need them. I got no use for them. We've all done that in some capacity. But those are sinful responses to sin. So what is the answer? What is the answer? Well, God doesn't want independence, but he also doesn't want codependence. He really wants interdependence between the genders. Independence is the answer for the chauvinist and the feminist. And I'll just say to, the, to anyone who has the, sort of the feminist ideology, look, you came from him. For the feminist, you came from him. And for the male chauvinist, you came from her. You, you came from a woman, right? Like, if you're someone that wants to twist the words of Scripture so you can oppress women, I would remind you of just the basic fact of life that you came from one. So anyone anyone tries to use these verses to divide the genders, I think verses 11 and 12 pour some cold water on that, reminding you that you need each other. There's this interdependency that needs to happen with males and females. So it's not independence, but it's also not codependence, which is like worshiping the opposite sex like an idol. Worshiping relationships, trying to find your ultimate meaning and fulfillment in this relationship or relationships. This person hyper-focuses on love and romance so much that they miss completely what it's supposed to point to and what it's supposed to be a picture of. And so it's not independence, not codependence, but it's interdependence. And that's just a simple acknowledgement that we need each other. And that's true whether you're single or married. Like, we need the opposite gender in our lives, in the body of Christ. I think of a story that our executive pastor, Danny Cunningham, told this past Wednesday. I think illustrates this perfectly. It's been fun watching Danny and Sandy Cunningham be grandparents. And so they have some little grandkids now. And I think their oldest grandson, Parker, recently referred to Danny as the one who goes with Nana. I mean, what a perfect illustration that is. That even a child knows those two just, they come together. They're a package deal. And that's, that's interdependence. They're living their lives in such a way in front of their kids and grandkids that those grandkids know those two just go together. And that's that's interdependence, letting everyone see like we need each other. Look with me down in verse uh, 13. 
It says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now we can summarize Paul's argument this way. There are differences in how men and women dress, but even God dresses them differently, giving women longer hair. If I saw 10 women with longer hair, we would look at them and say, they probably should have long hair. If I see 10 men with long hair, maybe one could pull it off, right? And make it look okay. And so does that mean that it's a sin for a man to have long hair? Well, no. A guy having long hair isn't a sin, but that is how we got the rat tail and the mullet. And I'm pretty sure those are both sin. (laughs) So there is that. Listen, I tried really hard this week. I have one picture for proof of me with long hair circa 1995. And I turned my closet over trying to find the, I couldn't find the pic and bless you with that image, but um, maybe another time. But the idea isn't, isn't uh, having long hair in our culture now and having short hair. Here's the overriding principle. We can't get lost in the weeds here. Men should be masculine and women should be feminine. Is it possible for a man to have long hair and still be masculine and for a woman to have short hair and still be feminine? It is possible. But in the Bible, um, those taking a Nazarite vow would let their hair grow. That's not sinful. They're trying to express their, the outward expression of their vow. But if a man's goal is to look feminine or her goal is to look masculine, then it would be sinful. So God creates us with these differences, and we shouldn't seek to deny those differences or or go against his good design. So the main issue for Paul is not just a head covering, but what the whole thing symbolizes. And the whole thing symbolizes just this difference, God's good design, difference in gender roles. You know, our culture sends, I think, mixed messages all the time. Even the idea of gender is getting attacked or getting blurred in our culture. But here's where culture can speak out of both sides of its mouth. On the one hand, they'll, they'll want to downplay gender and say it's, it shouldn't really be a thing. But you walk into any clothing store, secular, whatever, and what are you going to see? You know, what, this is the female side, this is the male side. It's really hard to get away from God's good design. It's really hard for us to do that. We've got to work really hard at that. And so are these differences just cultural? I say no. These things transcend culture because it all flows out of God's design, his good design. And then last verse, verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What a way to end that passage. You see, discussion about gender has always been this contentious thing in the church and in the culture It was true back then, it's true today. But Paul says, I'm not saying anything new. Paul's trying to bring the Corinthians in line with the larger church. And so our last principle, gender differences are not accidental, but they are gifts from God. Whenever we read the creation account, 
Some people think the differences came after the fall. Some will say, no, the differences happened because of sin. But you look at the creation account, you'll see, no, there were differences before sin enters the picture. And so what does that mean? Well, it means that the differences are a gift, not a curse. Back in verse 12, it says, all things are from God. It's part of God's good design. We should praise and worship him for that. When I think of uh, back in 2004, we were, we were talking to TBC. My wife and I were living in the DFW area at the time where she's from and trying to find a place to work at a church. And TBC, I had a friend that worked here, and he called me and said, hey, come interview at TBC. And so I came down to do the interview. But I was also interviewing at a different church in Fort Worth. And I really thought I was going to end up in the DFW area to stay closer to her family. That's what our, I, we thought our plan was going to be. And, and I went to a second interview at the church in Fort Worth, and I just thought it just didn't, didn't go very well. And I, I came home and walked into the apartment, and um, she said, how did it go? I said, I don't think it really went that well. I'm not, I'm not even sure how I feel about serving at that church. And she just said, well, maybe God wants us to go to temple. And I went, huh? You're, op- you're, op- you're open to that idea? And it was through that conversation that God began to have us pray and think about that possibility and really what led us here. And I thought she wasn't even open to the idea. And I'll, I tell you that story because God at times very often works in my wife's mind and heart. And, she's, and she is a gift to me. She sees things that I do not see and often before I see them. So headship does not mean that we lord over our families. But we listen with humility and reverence. And if these differences are God's gift to us, then here's the question for you. Is the gift unopened? What a tragedy if we try so hard to avoid the curse that we miss out on the blessing that God has for us. Let's pray together. God, thank you for just how creative you are in your creation. Something that can be so contentious and so debated in our culture, in the church, and yet it all flows out of your good design. And you are trying to image yourself in front of the world and let them see what you're like. And God, because of our sin, we have tainted, we've tarnished that picture and not done well at displaying that to the world. But God, we pray that you would just continue to grow us. I pray for the individual people in this, in this room that need to turn to you and surrender. Whether it's coming to know you or whether it's just they know you, they've just had a flawed perspective on your good design. I pray that you would redeem that and sanctify that and grow us as a body to see that the way that you want us to see it. God, we just thank you and praise you for who you are. And we worship you. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.